It's The Hate Show. I'm Blatavile. And I'm Shannon. Today we are talking about memories of hate. Mm, Memories of hate. Shannon, can you remember a time when you became aware that somebody hated you? Okay. All right. We're going to take a big breath. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So I was, yeah, going through my files of life and I had to go way back Um, because memories often start early, right? Yeah. So going way, way back. um, I'm trying to think like, when was my first memory of that feeling? And I did immediately go to third grade. um, And it was interesting because going there, I was like, well, was that hate? I don't know. Cause it didn't, it had little to no power over me. And so I thought, you know, it was just like a thing where mostly I was being falsely accused. And so I'm like, does that interpret it? When was it? I you know, was, did I feel hated? Mm, not so much. So I moved it up a little bit, sixth grade. Um, I had two incidences in sixth grade with um, two different girls in our class their names will be changed for this story time. Um, (laughs) um, And, and I will go into that story. I I just started to think about though, like, am I going too far back? Um, You know, because does that, we all have, you know, kids are kids. We all have memories of kids being mean to each other. Again, is it hate? Um, I had to really I just really had to think about that. Um, And so I turned to the book of life. Um, It's daily meditations with Krishnamurti. And so it's actually every day has, has a a reading. And I just happened to turn to the reading to see, I wonder if it applies to today. And the title of the page is learning has no past. Mm -hmm. And I just really liked this concept about how, um, a mind that a, a a mind that is acquiring knowledge is never learning because um, learning is always in the active present um, so it has no past and I kind of was thinking about this because going backwards you know it's just always this question of like why go there you know why are we dredging this up like that was third, sixth grade, whatever, like, who cares? Get over it. Like, does it even matter? Tit for tat. Why are we, you know, why are we dredging it up? So I love this idea that like, like, like to know yourself, you have to understand the structure of yourself um, and its total entity. Um, But you can't do that if it's burdened with your previous knowledge. So knowledge is accumulating all this stuff, you know, and you keep giving yourself more evidence of maybe someone hating you or something happening to you. It's, it's thing after thing after thing, which is, it's, it's building that into you. And I love that idea that you can't, it says, I can't do that burdened with my previous knowledge, with my previous experience or with a mind that is conditioned for then I am not learning. I am merely interpreting, translating, and looking with an eye that is already clouded by the past. And so I just wanted to offer that in the beginning to just say that we are here, I am here, um, really this 
podcast is here um, so that we can be in the act of learning. And I just like that. I like the action of learning. And that means that we're still in the present moment. So that made sense to me of like, well, we're, we're dredging this up because it, it isn't the past because learning has no past. Mm -hmm. And I really liked that. So anyway, okay. So going back, um, way back. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) So, um, so I had two things come up and again, they seemed rather petty. Um, and so I was thinking about, you know, yeah, what, what does it mean? Um, and the first one that came up, I'm going to change this girl's name. You'll probably know who she is, but, um, let's just call her for today. Um, Jan Seymour. So Jan Seymour, um, (laughs) she decided that it would be a good idea for her to vandalize our bathroom in sixth grade, the girl's bathroom. Um, and, it was about a three foot space that she took a black marker to and she used the word hate in what she wrote, which is why I think it, it came to my mind rather first and quickly. Um, she wrote on the wall, I hate Jan Seymour, her name by Shannon Nix. <laughs> and it was big. And so I remember going into the bathroom and looking and we took up the whole wall. And um, so, of course, I got pulled into the principal's office. And that was really the only memory I really ever have of even being in the principal's office in 11 years at that school. So it did have an impact um, on my memory. Um, and I was being falsely accused. And so, of course, they wanted to get to the bottom of it. And and so they asked me, you know, if I did this and then because I had no, like, why, why would I do that? You know? So I, I well, just, why would you sign it? Right. That's what I said. I, I said vandalizing. Here's my name. Exactly. Like, I'm like, I'm an artist, but I'm not going to sign that piece, you know, like, no. And so I, I, when I remember the adults saying, you know, did you do it? And I said, I, I said in my little sixth grade self, like, I'm pretty sure if I did that, I wouldn't sign it. And that's all I kind of needed to say to um, get myself off the hook. I mean, obviously they could tell like I was not hiding anything. I was not, you know, I didn't have any, there was nothing. And so they let me go. Um, But it was odd because this morning, so I thought, well, it didn't really have that much effect on me because I mean, obviously then she kind of, I knew she, I guess, hated me because she used the word hate in her very, her artwork. Um, (laughs) And so in her saying that I hated her, I took that to mean that she hated me. And I guess taking that a little bit further, I started thinking this morning, because I've been a teacher for over 25 years. And um, I started to think, because I thought, well, that didn't land on me. That didn't really have an impact. But then I thought, or did it? Does does that knowledge of that give me evidence to why I, to this day, say that I hate liars? And I started to think even from my teaching perspective, when a child is a, known and labeled as a liar or a lying child, I have interacted with those children and said, like, you got to, like, once you get labeled like that, 
it doesn't leave you. And so I started thinking, would the situation be different had I been sitting in that office and I either maybe looked different than she did, or if I had been already pulled in because I had been known to lie, would it have been more difficult to, to get myself out of that so easily? Hmm. Um, so it kind of got me thinking about that feeling of false accusations and judgment um, and liars and how hmm. that kind of all correlates. And then I'll just jam into the second story. And then I want to hear oh, your. Hold on. <laughs> I want, before jamming into the second story, I mean, you've brought up some stuff that I think is powerful. And we've been talking about the word power, but yes. it's really powerful. Um, we've talked about the word power be before we started the show. Let's, just, you know, uh, yeah. contextualize. Because you, you say that. What she wrote on the wall, what Jan Seymour wrote on the wall, yes, indicated to you how she felt about you. Yes. And I wonder to what extent the way that we feel about other people is really a reflection of our interpretation of how they feel about us. Yes. Absolutely, yes. And so there's an, a, an opportunity there to understand how it is that we can create this entire scenario that is based on assumption. Yes. That might, that is based on, on perception, right? An assumption that is built out of a perception of another person's, let's say another person's behavior. So let's say another person does something and then um, we experience that in a negative way. Yeah. Whether or not we intended it that way, we experience it in a negative way, and then we arrive at a conclusion that they intended the negative impact, yes. and it is evidence of their, you know, our, their antipathy or their hatred for us. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Right. Yes. I mean, I think, yeah, we're going to, yeah, this is going to come up, I think, a lot. Mm -hmm. because so much about hatred. I mean, we talked about that even in episode one. I, I mean, it, so much about hatred is you're feeling some kind of way about someone else. And I know you don't like some kind of way, but like you're feeling, you're feeling hateful towards someone else and it's burning you, you know? Well, and that's not exactly what I'm, I'm getting at. Cause I know that that's a conversation we also want to have. Yeah. But really what I'm thinking of more is the question of how do you know when someone else hates you? Right. I mean, you could have you the obvious. on a wall. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> exactly. So you can't have the obvious thing where somebody comes up to you and says that they hate you or they send you a message saying they hate you. Usually it isn't that straightforward. It isn't right. that blatant. Right. But, and so, you know, there, there's that question of if we're if we're considering our memories of being hated, yes. how did we know that, that's that this person was. actually hated us? Right. Uh, I mean, could, could that answer be embedded in your second story? Yes, I think it might be. Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, my second story is a little bit more difficult for me to tell quite honestly. Um, mm -hmm. 
also sixth grade-ish, I think. I think sixth grade. I was trying to really pinpoint the time. I really hadn't thought about this in a really long time. Yeah. Um, Actually, let me let me say this. Mm -hmm. um, when it came to, and there's a reason I'm saying this. Mm -hmm. When it came to Jan Seymour, mm -hmm. what color was the bathroom? Do you remember? Like a, like a cream. Okay. Then it was probably sixth grade. Yeah. Because our bathroom in junior high was rather memorable. Oh, was it? Was that? No. Shannon, it was bubble butt gum pink. Okay, I was going to say pink. That's what kind of like low-key was in my mind, but I like don't have a yeah. visual memory. I just No, it was Barbie pink. Yeah, this, <laughs> this was not pink. This was on a cream, but like not a good cream. Not a... Okay. Like okay. A, nah, yeah. Yeah. Like yeah. A, then, then it was probably sixth grade. Okay. Sorry mm -hmm. for interrupting. Go ahead. Yeah, no, that's hilarious. Um, um, so... The second one, also sixth grade, I'm thinking was, um, a, you know, a girl in my, I, a girl in my class, our class, our class. Um, again, I will, I will change her name for the purpose of this <laughs> story. Um, and she, she definitely, um, I guess I knew that she hated me, um, because, we were playing kickball out on the whatever the asphalt and and i was on my base <clears throat> excuse me i was on my base um and so i couldn't really run away from her because i was on post i was on my base and so she ran past me and got like four inches from my face and spat on orange seeds into my face that i guess she had from her lunch and um I was just playing like we weren't even interacting with her. Um, I was trying to think about this last night and I really don't know. I try to understand the root and I don't know what she what she hated about me. Like Jan Seymour, I think she just literally just liked a boy that I liked. And that was literally that. And I, you know, I don't think that it was anything like I don't think she hated me. She just really liked a boy. You know what I mean? I, that was the root. And so it didn't it didn't land on me. And so because I understand it. And but with. With the second story, um, I do feel like um, we'll call her Rhonda, Rhonda Brown. So Rhonda Brown, <laughs> um, she spat in my face, and it was it felt like out of nowhere, mm -hmm. and I didn't understand the context of it, and I didn't understand why she did that. And I also felt like I couldn't run away from, I couldn't go get her. I mean, it was more important for me to just continue to play the game um, uh, that we were playing. And, um, but it definitely had a feeling like, oh, she, she hates me. Hmm. And um, so then that was kind of, let's say, proof or evidence number one. Uh, and then... I don't remember timeline of how long this was, but we were at choir practice. And if you remember, I think we had choir practice on Friday nights because we sang at the church um, the next day. And so I, um, and maybe she was in the choir. I really don't remember. I don't have my, many other memories of her except for these two hateful memories. Um, I had my purse in the back on a chair while we were rehearsing and she stole my purse. Now you would think, well, whatever, what does a sixth grader have in their purse? That's so important. Like the deal. But 
I had the most valuable items that belonged to me in that purse. Mm. Um, when I was three years old, my parents got divorced and my mom moved three hours away. And I didn't have tangible things of my mother. Um, I didn't have something to hold when I needed her. Like, you know, I had to call her. I called her. She was there for me. We were, you know, she was always there. I have, I have a mother. I, you know, I did then. I do now. I have a mother. And she was there, but it wasn't a thing I could hold when I needed it. And so I had photographs, a few, in my purse of my mother and of me and my mother and it wasn't like today like we didn't have those on digital files that was the one and only photo i i couldn't get another one um it's not like i could just go print another one because it was backed up in my computer on my phone like that was not a thing and so when i tell you that that was precious to me it was and also i had pictures of family members in that same wallet who had passed away and so that little plastic, remember how we had the little plastics with the little pictures? It was my everything. And I took it in my pink purse. And um, it, you know, I think this is why it felt really hateful because I felt like everyone knew that about my life or my story. Um, and it felt cruel. Yes getting spat on felt cruel, but this was next level cruel because she was doing something that broke my heart and I felt like she knew it. And I, I remember crying night after night after night because I couldn't understand why someone would do that. Like I, cause I, again, I couldn't, I didn't know the root cause. Like maybe I'm sure she had a root cause. Unfortunately she's, she's passed now. So I, I have, I, I won't have a, I won't have an answer on that. Wait, she's so, passed away. She did pass away mm -hmm, several years ago. Mm -hmm. Oh, wow. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Oh, wow. Yeah. And how, how did you know she did it? Well, because she, she gloated over it and she invited mutual friends of ours, or at least, at least one, I feel like two, um, to her home, which was not far. We you know we all lived fairly close to each other. It was a small town. Mm -hmm. And um, she invited them to her home and was like, ha, 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 I've got her pictures and I've got her purse. And she destroyed the pictures while she was like with them. And so they came to me and said, you know, um, Rhonda has your pictures and Rhonda has your purse. Mm -hmm. And I was so upset that I told my father and my dad's an introvert. Like he, I did not get my father involved in very many things in my life, but I was like, we have to go to her house. Like I want my purse. I want my pictures. I didn't know it, that they were destroyed. I just knew she had it. And I thought even if I get any of it back, I want it back. I want any piece of those pictures, any bit of it I can get. And so we showed up, he and I, at her house, her mother answered, and we actually, my dad was like, well, we want to search her room, which seems so drastic now, <laughs> but, um, and I, I found my purse, but the pictures were gone, and <sighs> because of the, the cruelty of it, 
that feels like my first memory of and being hated and my yeah um that that's 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 my my first one and i know you didn't exactly say what's your first memory but going back that that one hit me that one hit me um because i didn't understand it and i i think that's an important piece of trying to make sense of why people do things um you have to have a little like you have to understand like you know why what what made what motivated this person to do something so hurtful and so cruel um get below the belt you know like as they say so um and i got a few more um as i got a little older that maybe but first i'd like to i want to ask you from you know what about you like like yeah so in terms of of memories of of hate and then yes you know going back right yeah back because there are those things that are foundational right there are those experiences that we have that lay the foundation and things that follow after it are built on the foundation are interpreted from the perspective of the foundation but the foundation right. is really really inter- interesting and for me it isn't a particular incident really mm-hmm. but it is a realization mm. of being despised mm. on the basis of my belonging to a group okay right on the basis of being belong of belonging to a group and i think that it really became clear to me when I saw my birth certificate for the first time. Okay. And I, I believe I was around 11. My family had been in the United States for just over five years. Mm-hmm. My parents initially came here uh, to go to school. Mm-hmm. My dad uh, first started out with a master's in public health and then went to medical school. My mom, my <laughs> the story is that my dad threw her in nursing school <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and real literally summer school accelerated course she had to sink or swim you know it's this that's his own whole story but mm-hmm. um so they you know come, had come to go to school they were in professions that were needed in the united states and so after five years we were able to apply for green cards so in the process of applying for green cards, my parents have all of our identity documents are spread out on the table. And I, you know, started looking and found my birth certificate and noted that under citizenship, well, we noted several things. First of all, um, I noted what it said for eth- like ethnicity, right? I don't remember if it said race or ethnicity, but this is from South Africa, right? And so it said that my... I believe it said that my ethnicity was Zulu. And then I saw my sisters and it said she was Tosa, which is a different ethnic group, different language group. And I'm like, wait, what? Mm -hmm. Right. And there were times when I felt tempted to tease her about it because Mm -hmm. my brother and I were, so I have two younger siblings. I'm the eldest. I have two younger siblings. And my brother and I were listed as being from the same group, but because my sister was born in a different part of the country and they didn't bother to ask, they just, you know, assumed Mm -hmm. that she was, because she was born in a Kosa speaking area Mm -hmm. of the country. 
And so they assumed that our family is Klausa. And so that they put Klausa on my sister's birth certificate. Mm -hmm. So I noticed that. But then under citizenship, it said Republic of South Africa undetermined. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, what? What is this undetermined? You know, and eventually I became to understand, you know, we got our green cards and our green cards said resident alien. Like that's your status when you have a green card mm -hmm. is resident alien, which seems to me honestly kind of um, hostile. Right. You know, it, it, aliens don't belong. Right. The definition of an alien is one right. who doesn't belong. Right. right. Talk about feeling like another. Yeah. Okay. Resident yeah. aliens. So my status was undetermined resident alien, basically. <laughs> You know, yeah. and yeah. I, I mean, I, I, it wasn't until I was what, 20, I was in my early twenties before I could vote anywhere, before I had actual citizenship mm -hmm. anywhere, because in South Africa at that time, the reason that it said, um, Republic of South Africa undetermined was because the South African government had reached a point in its plan for apartheid, where they were going to put us on reservations. So they actually had seen the United States and the United States answer to dealing with Native Americans. Mm. They're like, oh, that sounds good. We'll do that with our natives. Yeah. And so they were assigning people to reservations, basically. They called them homelands. Yeah. Right. And so my family, when I was born, had not yet been assigned to a homeland. This is the undetermined aspect. That's the undetermined aspect of it. Mm. So it was to indicate that, you know, the intention was that we would not have um, citizenship in South Africa. South Africa, what they were trying to do is to divest or, well, divest. It's not like we had it really, but to formalize. Mm -hmm. Uh, a, a system in which no black person had citizenship in South Africa, mm -hmm. that you would be a citizen of your reservation. And, you know, it, I mean, th there was all kinds of things about it that were just really awful. Uh, they had taken, um, I think it was like 87% of the land. And of course it was the best land. Uh, and at that time, I think white people made up something like 20% of the population. So they were intending to take 80% of the population of South Africa and mm -hmm. stick them on 13% of the land, something like 13% of the land. Well, it kind and of sounds like something else that's going on in the world right now, but I digress. Okay, go ahead. Well, yes, and yes. we're in the 100th day. I just want to you know, uh, acknowledge that. Know. that today, if I remember, if, if I'm correct in looking at the reports, I th believe today is the 100th day. Right. Right. So that's where I, in my heart is hurting right now, mm. you know, thinking about it because the lasting consequences. So, you know, you, you read um, from, um, was it uh, uh, Murthy's last name? Krishnamurti. Krishna, Krishnamurti, yeah. you know, uh -huh. about, mm -hmm. about the past and about how, we are not learning, you know, if we're in the past. Mm -hmm. And then I'm thinking about the value of returning to these memories yeah. in the present and recognizing the 
influence that they can have on our present tense experiences. Absolutely. Right. So that there is that continuing questioning of where do I belong and why was I unwanted? Why didn't, why don't they, why didn't they want us? And the answer, there is an answer and it is both simple and complex Mm -hmm. and also very related to what we're seeing happening today, Yes, which was abject terror. South African white people were terrified that they, they believed that they were surrounded by hostile nations, hostile people, and that if they let up their guard for just a second, that we would overrun them and slaughter them. Mm-hmm. It was called the Schwarzgevar, right? Um, in, in, in Dutch, Afrikaans, which is a, a, an offshoot of, of, of Dutch. The Schwarzgevar, the black, ter- was it the black danger, the black threat? And wow. that's who we were, was a threat. Wow. And so their intention was to get rid of the threat, to put us in these, these homelands so that Anytime you need to travel, um, you had to get permission. So if I wanted to travel, the way that it was set up is that if I wanted to travel from one homeland to another homeland, or even in some instances from one part of one homeland to another part of a home, another homeland, I couldn't do it without going through South Africa, which meant I would have to get permission. Okay. <laughs> So even if I wanted to live my life without ever touching South African soil, let's say I'm like, fine, do what you want, have South Africa. I'm just going to keep myself to, you know, traveling around the the homelands. My recollection of that is that they set up the map so that that wasn't possible. Yeah. It was really about control and it was really about the sense of a lack of power. Right. So it's it's an extraordinary thing when a really powerful force mm. imagines itself as powerless. Mm. Exactly. The, the challenge of that, the mm. danger of that is that because they feel themselves to be powerless, their reaction often is far out of proportion yes. to the threat. Yes. So here it is in South Africa, we have this situation where from the perspective of access to money, access to weapons, access to official power, uh, you know, the, the, the power to define who you are and where you live, what your citizenship is, what your nationality is, that was all located in the hands of a people who believed themselves to be under threat, to who believed themselves to be um, vulnerable mm-hmm. and to be powerless. Mm-hmm. And so you know, you can see the result of that uh, in what was going on in South Africa, uh, what led my family uh, to have to leave. And when we left, we left with an understanding that we would never go back. We had no guarantee and we had an assumption that we would never be able to go back, right? Because there was this group of people living there who had access to enormous amounts of power but saw us as more powerful than they and were afraid that our desire on this earth was to eliminate them, which was, you know, there was a political party. <laughs> if I remember, I think it was called the Pan-Africanist Congress. And it is true that their motto was one settler, one bullet. 
Wait, say said, again. Their set their motto was one settler, one bullet. Okay, that's what I thought you said. <laughs> and, right? uh -huh, okay. And they did have uh, you know, they, they said their intent was to drive the white man to the sea. Uh -huh. okay? Um, and so you have that reaction going on, and I don't want to discount the power of the fear that white people, I'm sure, experienced hearing that. Mm -hmm. The truth of the matter is, and what has borne, you know, the, the, what, what has come to be true mm -hmm. since apartheid ended, you'll notice that there wasn't a slaughter of white people, I that there wasn't that. a white a genocide you know, right. of, of white people. Right. What really black people wanted was to live, right. <laughs> you know, Common to be able to travel food. freely, to build businesses, to educate their children, to have nice homes, to travel. Mm -hmm. We just wanted to have nice lives. And the idea that we were so intent on killing white people, you know, it's like, we didn't care that much. We didn't care about you. <laughs> Do you know, um, we were, the white folks were far less important. Yeah. You know, what happened to white folk and, and, and doing anything to white folks was far less important yeah. than the common human desire yeah. to do well and be better and, and, and to live a nice life. Exactly. That's really what we wanted. I mean, that is, I think, what everyone wants. You know what I mean? I, mm -hmm. I, I think that's really important to always remind yourself, you know, and, and, you know, big picture, everyone that like, that's, that's not the nature of us all. Like we, we want our children to be safe. We want a safe home. We want to be able to feed and educate and our children learn, grow things, you know, cook good food, sing songs. Like, you know, we want community. We want love. You know, we, we, everyone wants safety and, and, and the opportunity to, to do whatever you want to do on this earth you know it's like to live the life that you that you imagine for yourself um but i do want to go back to your 11 year old self for a second just because who you are now you have a very good understanding of all of what you just said but when you first saw those papers did you try to process that all by yourself or did you did you ask a parent do you remember that at all so how did you how did you come well, first, yeah, did you did you process it alone is my first question. And then my second question is, did you immediately be like, well, they hate me? Like, did, how did that as you did associate what you just saw with how you felt like you, you know, mm -hmm. what I'm trying to say? Like, <laughs> <laughs> so it, it's not that I went to my parents to ask them to process it. Mm -hmm. It's that it's sort of the way that kids often learn a lot of things yes. in their families and in their communities. It's not that you're told anything, but you absorb it. You know, mm -hmm. you, you know, right. Maybe it's from overhearing conversations and then, you know, seeing or reading things. And so what, what I understood not on the basis of any one particular conversation, but over 11 years of being alive mm -hmm. as a black South African mm -hmm. was that this thing 
that was represented by these documents mm -hmm. was illegitimate. That it was a, I mean, there was an, ex, there, you know, nobody would have necessarily described it as a psychosis, but it was something like that. Mm -hmm. That there was this mythology that was built up by white people that we kind of, we, we recognized its falsity mm -hmm. and we kind of were sort of, I don't, I'm trying to figure out like how to describe it. There was a book in our house called The Covenant. Mm -hmm. And this book described the way that Afrikaners came to understand who they were as a, a, a group, as a community and their purpose in South Africa. The story is that after Jan van Riebeck, who was the first, he was a Dutch trader and he came to South Africa and established a trading post there, mm -hmm. uh, the Dutch East India Company. And then uh, more you know, Afrikaners came and the community built up and so forth. Um, and there came the British and the British also established a trading post and then established a colony. Mm -hmm. And there were disagreements between the British and the Dutch, which sounds really familiar, does it not? It does. <laughs> if you think about New Amsterdam, which is now called New York, mm -hmm. uh, right? <laughs> um, <laughs> so similarly that happened. And what happened in the South African case is that the, uh, the Dutch got together and they climbed into covered wagons, Shannon. They yes, they call themselves four trekkers. You know, when people say that they're trekking, yeah, okay, they mm. call themselves four trekkers, mm. and they moved into the interior of South Africa, into where my family is from, and in that area, it's beautiful, it's fertile, uh, and they, you know, after enduring this trek, this journey, uh, arrived at what they thought or what they. It established to be the promised land. So in their eyes, they were the new children of Israel. They were the children of Israel mm -hmm. and God had led them out of, you know, trouble. I wouldn't necessarily say bondage, but, you know, the, the situation with the British and they had now trekked into the interior of South Africa, into this promised land. They right. found the promised land and God gave them dominion over this promised land and over everything that was in it. So they believed that God had given them dominion over the Africans hmm. to the extent that they became the Africans. Hence the name Afrikaner. Afrikaner is African. Mm -hmm. So they said, we are the Africans and you who are here are under our dominion. God has placed us over you to dominate you. We know that's crazy. <laughs> so, and there I used the word again, but in this case, I mean it really, yes. that, you know, yes. there, there is some form of psychosis, I think, yes. behind making up that kind of story. And for, at least from our perspective, right? Because yes. we see all this going out around, this is not saying, this is not yes. rational. Right. It makes no objective sense. This is not right. objectively right. And um, mm -hmm. Africans are very patient people. Mm -hmm. And I know I'm generalizing, I'm generalizing across an entire continent. But one of the things that I think can be said across the continent is things move 
really slowly. There, there's a song, there's a saying that there's no hurry in Africa. Hurry, hurry doesn't exist in, in Africa, right? Mm -hmm. And so African people tend to be really patient and rather than, um, well, rather than innovate and, and push for change, we tend to want to adapt. Mm -hmm. We are adapters. We adapt to our environment so that we can continue to thrive in the environment as it is rather than looking to dominate the environment. Mm -hmm. which, of course, unfortunately made us ripe for colonization, <laughs> for being colonized, right? Um, and also explains what happened in South Africa in terms of the fight against apartheid. And why did it take so long to ramp up? Well, it took a long time for people to come to the point of saying, yeah, okay, we'll engage in armed struggle, direct armed struggle. And initially, really, it was, hey, can we evolve this thing? You know, um, can can we find a way to come to a peaceful understanding so that we all can live together? That really is, uh, you know, at, at least for for Southern African people and Guni people, you know, this was the preferred way to do things. And rather, we discovered ourselves being um, being dominated and abused by people who are also terrified of us. Mm. And that is a powerful combination, mm. right? Yeah. So my 11 year old self knew this history, understood the mythology mm -hmm. and saw the paperwork and understood that we were going to have to do some things that were, uh, you know, annoying if you will, you know, we were going to have to jump through these hoops in order to get where we wanted to go. Hoops that white people wouldn't have to jump through. Uh, and we understood why that was the, the, the case. But we did what we had to do to get, we adapted, right, to, to get to where we had to do. So, to, I'm sorry, to get to what we had to do. So, um, one of the things that was true about this is that while at that point I was able to see my birth certificate, it had been constructed because initially when my parents were applying for green cards, they wrote, you know, of course to South Africa, South Africa denied we ever existed. Mm. They wrote back and we said, we don't know these people. We have no idea who these people are, at least for my brother and sister and I. And mm. so what my parents had to do is that they had to find people, I think it was at least two or three people who swore out affidavits that we had been born to our parents. Wow. So our existence on an official basis on paper was established by the word of three other people. Wow. Who wrote out these affidavits to say, I know these parents and I know that these children were born to them. Mm. And it was on the basis of that that our, that our identity documents were created. Wow. So, you know, the, the, the idea of my identity, its establishment, its meaning that there are, there, there is a nation of people. Yes. Or at least there was a nation of people who hated us. You know, it kind of blew my mind. It's not something that I don't know that anybody's ever able to truly wrap their mind around. Right. 
but it left me in a constant state of just bewilderment. Honestly. Yeah, confusing, especially to a kid and even to anyone. <laughs> right. Because I mean, right? it doesn't make rational sense. That's no. why it's, con it's confusing. Very, until again, one remembers, because if you're thinking about it from your own point of view, it makes right. no rational sense. Right. But if you're able to take yourself and put yourself into the shoes of the other person, yes. to count what they say, uh as the truth for that for the matter of that moment for the you know for the reason of that moment absolutely uh then yes i understand it they're mm -hmm. terrified right they know they have some sense that they have left their own place of safety you know they've left europe and right. they've come to this land and just taken it and in order to maintain that you have to be in a constant state of vigilance Right. When you've taken something from someone else and you both know you took it, mm -hmm. then you always have to be concerned that the people you took it from are going to come and they're coming, gonna for back. They're yes. coming for you. Yes. And so you will always live in that condition. Yes. Unless and until something changes mm -hmm. uh, to force you to relinquish this yeah. idea of sole ownership, mm -hmm. that you can exclusively own this and exclude everybody who had been there before. And it's really funny too, because with South Africa, the story was adapted in order to answer that um, argument mm -hmm. by saying, well, nobody was there. Right. So what they say is when they came to, uh, you know, South Africa and they came into the interior, we weren't there. And what's really interesting about that for me is that that argument is sometimes used here in the United States mm -hmm. with Native American land. Mm -hmm. Either they weren't he here or they weren't using it. They didn't they weren't developing it. You know, they, they weren't exploiting it to its best um purpose right and so the similar arguments were made in in south africa that right. they had a right to be there because well we weren't using it so you know a convenient justification a very convenient justification mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so thinking now about mm. how things have unfolded yes since the early 1990s when apartheid ended and thinking about how terrifying it was for white people to think that they were now going to live in a country that is governed by black people. Mm -hmm. I want to be open to understanding what it li it's like to be that person, mm -hmm. to have that experience, you know, to see your country shift in a way that is so profound and find yourself on the other side, still wealthy, mm -hmm. <laughs> still alive, mm -hmm. you know, still able to do very much of what you were able to do in the past, except that you can't do things like, a uh, quick story, I was in South Africa, uh, this was during college, I took a year off and lived there to do research. One day I went to the post office to mail something and this was the year after Nelson Mandela had been elected. Mm -hmm. So apartheid is over, mm -hmm. except 
people's behavior doesn't just change like that, right? Okay, so I'm in the post office, I'm standing in a line, it's only black people in the post office at that moment. A white woman walks in and she goes and stands off to the side on her own. When the person who was at the counter was finished and walked away, she just walked up to the counter. Oh. I'm standing there going, what, 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 what? what? <laughs> <laughs> and the people in line with me were like, don't, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. Leave her alone. I'm like, what are you talking about? That's not right. Mm -hmm. She needs to get in line with the rest of us. Right. And they're like, nope, don't, don't worry about it. You know, we're, we're not here to make waves or whatever. It's not that big of a deal. We will get to see the person at the counter eventually. Mm -hmm. But it was just so, it was a, it was, it was a, a, a formative moment mm -hmm. to actually experience what you'd read about in books, for example, right? So growing up in the United States, you'd read about segregation in the South, Jim Crow laws and that sort of thing. And then I saw it in action. Like mm -hmm. it happened to me mm -hmm. standing in line with all these other people. And she just walks in, forms the white line. Right. Party of <laughs> one. Right. <laughs> and then just walks up to the counter uh, with the next person. I was just aghast. Mm -hmm. I was aghast. It's interesting now going back to South Africa all these years later and going to government offices and watching white people wait in line along with everybody else. Mm -hmm. We have evolved in that way. Right. But to go back to your original question, you know, how do I conceptualize what's going on? How do I make sense of it? Mm -hmm. um, it's, we knew, it's something that you knew, even as an 11 year old, right. I knew what the underlying story was. I knew the story of how our, my family got out of South Africa and one day I'll tell that story. Mm -hmm. um, and it explained a lot of things to yeah. me about why we were going through what we were going through and having to jump through the hoops that we were having to jump through. Um, and then there was an extent to which there was a sort of sense of futility about, yes. you know, is it always going to be this way? And we're just sometimes we're tired. Yeah. Like, is this our fate? Yeah. Is this just who? Yeah. I mean, and also I can imagine coming, I can imagine feeling like where you actually came from, you were made to feel like you didn't belong. And then you're coming to a new country where you feel like you don't belong. Um, so yeah, that's seeding, that's planting a seed for you to know where do I belong? Like, I, I don't, where do I belong? Who am I? Where do I belong? Well, Shannon, it's actually really, 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 really for real. In 2025, the real ID law comes yeah. into effect. Uh-huh. I went in 2018 or 2019. No, it was 2018. I went in 2018. My driver's license was expiring. So I went to renew my license. And I thought, might as well just, you know, get ahead of the curve and get my real ID now. Yes. So there's a list of the approved kinds of proof of who you are that you need to bring to the post or to the post office, to the DMV mm -hmm. to get your real ID driver's license. Mm -hmm. And I pulled all that stuff together. I don't have a birth certificate, a South African birth certificate, but I do have a certificate of naturalization from the United States. Mm -hmm. And that serves in place 
of a birth certificate. It's kind of like a new birth certificate okay. that, that says we have vetted this person. We know who they are and their full identity and we have made them American citizens. And so you can use this document in place of a birth certificate. I've never used a birth certificate in the United States otherwise. I have my certificate of naturalization. Mm -hmm. So I go to the post office. I come to the front, you know, to the counter. And the woman there starts looking through all of my documentation. Mm -hmm. And so she's like, so like, what's your full name? Because on my birth certificate, I'm sorry, my birth certificate, on my driver's license, it says Batabile K.S. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. So it's got my middle initials. And that's the way my full name has been my entire life. Yes. On documents. Mm -hmm. So she says, she looks at it and she says, what, what do the K and the S stand for? And I told her, mm -hmm. and she says, did you make it up? <laughs> <laughs> so first, yes, the, my first, I was annoyed to begin with. And then I was like, oh shoot, I'm in trouble. Right, like, huh? <laughs> okay. Yeah. Because yeah, I, it, it, and, and it was, it, it was the attitude. Yeah. I recognize this attitude. I've been here with this attitude before and I felt tired and then also felt the need to gird up my loins, you know, that expression, right? <laughs> prepare for trouble, prepare yeah. for, uh, and it's not so much trouble, but effort. Yes. I knew that I was going to now have to put in extra effort that other people didn't have to in order to prove that I was entitled to getting this ID. Mm. So of course I said, no, I didn't make this up. And she's like, well, where's your proof? And so I'm like, okay, fine. I'm going to have to get my birth certificate from South Africa. And it just so happened that I was leaving for South Africa just two weeks later. <laughs> you know, so I was like, fine, I'll just go to South Africa. I'll get my birth certificate. I go to South Africa with my parents. I go to the home affairs office to get a copy of my birth certificate. Now, the problem is I don't have, at that time we hadn't found, we couldn't find all those documents that we had used for the green card. Mm -hmm. But what I have is my parents' documentation. They brought their marriage license. They brought themselves. And the three of us went to the Home Affairs office together. Mm. And the woman at the desk with the computer says, what's your identity number? And I was like, I don't know if I have an identity number. I was you know, five years old when I left. They didn't give identity numbers to infants, you know, to really young children. Um, I was on my mother's passport and here's my mother <laughs> <laughs> and she's like, well, sorry, can't help you. And I was like, wait, what? you know, I said, could you just look it up? And she refused. She had a computer with a database and she could have put my name into the database to see whether they had my birth certificate and where it was. Yeah. And she refused. So we're standing there in line going, but because we become Americanized, I piped up at least, you know, especially the one who grew up in the United States, I piped up and I asked to see the manager. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I said, well, who's your supervisor? I want to talk to your supervisor. And so wow. eventually and we went. How old were you? Is this college? Oh, this was in 2018. 20, okay, 2018. Yeah, got it. So okay. we won't be talking about how old I was. Yeah. <laughs> got you. 2018. Okay, okay, okay. Okay, this was 2018. Okay. So, yesterday. Yeah. So we go, so we finally ultimately end up 
in the office of the person who is in charge of the office, right? Mm -hmm. And she sits there looking at us. And we had learned because <laughs> when we first came to the counter, my parents kind of stood back and let me do the talking. Mm -hmm. And the moment I opened my mouth and opened and spoke with an American accent, boom, that was it. Door shut, case closed. You cannot possibly be a South African. You couldn't have been born here and talk like that. Whoa. So by the time we got to this woman, because we talked to a couple of people before her, <laughs> we had changed strategies and we went full on misogyny, which meant that, you know, well, let's not say misogyny. We went on full on patriarchy yeah. and my mom and I said nothing. And my dad did all the talking. <laughs> We're like, okay, fine. The man will talk. So we sit down in there and the woman hears our story. I tell her I had had a South African passport. And there's a story, another story about how I came to lose that passport. Right. Mm -hmm. But I explained to her, my documents have been taken from me. And I'm here to try to get my documents. Are you trying to become a South African citizen? And I actually, I know. <laughs> I actually considered trying to apply for citizenship. Because if I try to apply for citizenship, then perhaps that they'll have to open up and get documents or something, mm -hmm. yeah. right? But I mean, I can't apply for South African citizenship. I was born there. Mm -hmm. So we explained this to her. No, I'm not looking for citizenship. I'm not trying to become a South African citizen. I need my identity documents so that I can get more identity documents in the United States. Mm -hmm. And the, she sits back and she looks at my mom and she says, you sure this is your daughter? And my mom's like, yes. And she sits back and she hits her belly and she says, you, she came out of here. Are you what? sure she came out of here? <laughs> wow. <laughs> we didn't get my documents and to this day i have not yet gotten my documents wow so you know you're talking about not belonging here and not belonging there yeah. it's it's for real actually it's real it's ongoing right thankfully i do have a u.s passport mm -hmm. so i'm going to have to use my passport to fly around the united states hmm unless something gives somewhere and I'm able to either find someone at the DMV who will accept the documents that I have as adequate for mm -hmm. me to get a real ID or find somebody in South Africa who will honor, I guess, you know, the, the UN, the international law requires countries to give people their documents. Right. And so I'm, I have to find some way of, enforcing that yeah right getting that enforced um and so you're right it is like being caught in a vice mm -hmm. you know between um american prejudice and south african prejudice and i'm like i can't win yeah <laughs> right it's yeah wow yeah huge well you know even going into this topic and knowing i was going to be talking to you and and learning more of your story i i felt even my privilege of knowing that 
Um, I don't have many experiences with being hated. Hmm. And, you know, the fact that my brain only came up with about four or five anecdotes. Um, last night, I really thought into that and how privileged I am that that they are the ones I have. Do you know what I mean? I really, mm -hmm. I really did feel that. Um, and I think the only, the only one in my experience that kind of, it does not at all. I mean, what you just described is it's so layered and it's so big and it's, it's deep, you know, I mean, that's, like you said, it's on both sides. It's woven together. It's really hard to pull the pieces because it's a lot. And um, I so I just want to acknowledge that because, mm -hmm. you know, I know that, you know, how we feel is how we feel. And if, you know, if we feel hated on a small scale or a large scale, that's still a feeling that we need to process and we need to um, work through that so that it doesn't fester in us. We don't want to keep those things buried no matter how big or small. Um, so I'm not diminishing, you know, a small story, but I'm also recognizing a big story. Hmm. Um, just, just to throw that out there. Um, and I guess the only other story that came to me last night that is, I was trying to think, you know, beyond sixth grade. Um, and it was me going into graduate school. Hmm. And it's a really brief story, but it can't, I had also kind of not thought about it until last night and um, on how it affected me. But like, it was kind of my first experience of where I felt socially excluded. Hmm. And that kind of ties more into like the hatred that you're talking about and the fear of other. Um, so as an artist, I did my undergraduate work at a private school, a religious school, and I was transmuting my narratives and my darkness, my shadow work was all done with my art. And so my art was very visceral and um, it really had a lot of shock value and it had a lot of, it, it, it dealt into violence and it dealt into misogyny and it dealt into fear and it's dealt into judgment. And at my school, for the most part, undergraduate wise, um, in a religious setting, they let me be. There was one teacher who hated pretty much my work because it was just too much for him. But it was interesting because when I went for graduate school, I thought, well, you know, I was at a religious school and I felt a little bit of this, um, you know, this feeling of like, well, like at least from this one teacher that I was a little much. And, and so I thought, but when I get out into the real world, art is art. No one cares. Like, you know, there's a little, there's art for everything. There's, you know, there's, there's all full spectrum of art. Um, and so I really didn't even think two bits about it. I thought, well, wow, when I get out of this school and I go into the real world, I'm going to be accepted. My art, is no different than any other artist. We're all talking about what matters to us and this is what matters to me. So it just didn't, did just didn't hit me. And so when I went to graduate, do I went to do my um, interview for graduate school at one that I really wanted to go to. And um, 
I I was pregnant at the time. I'm this kind of also uh, added to the emotions feeling <laughs> in this situation and how many tears it <laughs> brought with it. But um, I put my best foot forward. I put my dress, my best dress on, um, and I I my cousin went there and helped me. We hung up all of my art on a wall so that I could have this um interview with three different instructors from this college that i really wanted to get my master's from and um they treated me so poorly and um they were afraid of my art Ooh. and they were afraid of me the first teacher sat with me and she didn't want to say she just said wow she looked at my art at the wall and looked at me in my cute dress with my big belly. <laughs> then she looked at the art and then she looked back at me and she said, wow, and you look like such an innocent thing. And, and I thought, what does that mean? I, I look nice. My art does not look nice is what she was saying. Mm. And but she didn't really say a lot more. She didn't know how to put words around what she was feeling. And then the second teacher came and was also didn't really use words, just kind of was like, this isn't really not what we're looking for. Um, mm -hmm. was just kind of distant uh, in, in this, you know, in the interview, it didn't really go into details of like good or bad or anything, but the third teacher, the third teacher that sat next to me, he said, yeah, we don't really take art like this. And I thought, well, what do you mean? I, I mean, I didn't even say that. I just kind of looked at him like, huh, what? And um, he said, we don't want to be responsible as a university for if you decide to go jump in front of a bus. Oh my gosh we don't want to be associated with that. And wow, I was so floored and I felt so judged and I felt so misunderstood and so excluded. Hmm. And the only other thing from that exact day, besides afterwards crying for two weeks straight, I was mm -hmm. so upset. I didn't see that coming. Mm -hmm. um, the girl that they were doting over her art, I just thought, well, what do they want? And there was a girl, because, you know, we were in this big room. And so you could, you know, we all each sort of had our space. And so I saw other other people, other, you know, young people trying to figure out, you know, how their whole show off their work. And um, she had painted pairs, a wall of pairs. Each pair had, was on its own paper and had different colors. So different color pairs. That was the entire thesis. That was her entire work and her entire body of artwork. And they were gloating over those pairs. They just loved the pairs. And I thought, well, yeah, I looked at mine and it was about, um, it was a lot, it was my insides out. Mm -hmm. I had, I had poured my insides onto those canvases. And she did a study on pairs. <laughs> and so we were, it was, I saw the contrast. I am not that. 
I actually don't belong. If that's what you like and want, I am not that. And I probably won't be. And I was devastated. I, mm -hmm. I thought, wow, I just, cause again, it was in contrast to thinking in the real world, anything goes, what do you mean? I art's not like, it wasn't, you know, like it wasn't bloody and gory. And I don't know, I've seen art that's like pretty out there. You know, I've taken classes about the, the shock value of art, you know, like I've seen some shocking art and I just didn't even categorize my, I just thought, well, yeah, in my little private school, I'm kind of shocking, but in the real world, I'm not shocking. Mm -hmm. But to be made to feel like I didn't get, I was, I was kept from a position that I really wanted. And that speaks into this, what you're kind of talking about, this idea of belonging and this idea of feeling like you're socially excluded and different. And then I ended up going to the school that I ended up getting my master's degree at and they treated me a lot differently and they actually they really they gloated over my work and <laughs> they were like well we don't even want to talk to you we just want you to don't even don't get influenced by us we want you to work for two years and we don't even want to interact with you you just keep doing you you keep doing what you're doing because you got something and they made me feel special and they made me feel valued and I knew that's where I belonged. And that was the school that I was meant to go to. But, but that was also a very, very, very solid memory of feeling hated and it also affecting and keeping me from something that I really wanted and desired and felt that I was deserving of, um, which speaks to more of how when hatred starts to take action and mm -hmm. and um and keeps you from opportunities that you deserve as much as anyone else i guess you know wow yeah I, that's an amazing illustration of it um i think because it it doesn't come from the usual perspectives Mm -hmm. You know, it's, it's not about race. It's not about gender. In this case, it's about, well, it, it, it's, well, it's about an assumption of your mental state. Yes. So it, it had to do with, with mental health, actually, yeah. right? Yes. Still, I think sometimes it's easier to see it when it isn't laden by all the stuff that is, you know, as you said, with race, it's complicated, it is, yeah. complex, it's huge. Mm -hmm. Same with, with, with gender. Mm -hmm. And then for people who experience um, the rejection and the, um, I'm going to use the O word, oppression, mm -hmm. that is associated with uh, your, your mental health and discrimination against people on the basis of their mental health. It is huge and it is complicated. Um, and then from being able to see it from an outside perspective that in, in that context, I'm an outsider. Yes. And so it shines bright and clear to me mm -hmm. what you're, you know, that, that you have that experience of mm -hmm. knowing yourself to be competent, beyond competent to be 
you know, um, qualified mm -hmm. to uh, have what it takes. You have your thesis there and so forth. And to find yourself rejected in such a just blatantly <laughs> dismissive way, mm -hmm. you know, we don't want to have to deal with you if you kill yourself. Right. Right. Um, right. You're too much. You are too much. Right. They were saying you are too much for us. We don't know what to do with you. You're too much. And and then to see that they've rejected your guts. Right. You described this as, you know, you had thrown your guts up there, which from my understanding as an artist, that's what you do. Right. Right. Uh, and, and then to see the contrast where it's, you know, and who knows what those pairs meant to this um, artist? Right, right. It could have been very, mm -hmm. deep, very deep. <laughs> those could have been some, some deep pairs, and I don't know the, the true line of those. Right. The point, the point is that, that that contrast is there. It's available for you to see. Right, right. And you know, I I'm sure we're going to do an episode that is about about this because I what I'm going to say next, which is, um, I, I it seems to me to be a double edged sword, mm -hmm. but there is a way, a, I think, a liberating way to interpret that experience. Yes. And it's what I use. Remember, you know. I ended my story by saying I can't win, mm. but I don't really mean that, right? It seems like I can't, I can't win. Right. What moment? Pardon? In the moment. In, in the moment, but even not really in the moment. You know, when you've been dealing with stuff like that for ones and when, when one has been dealing with that kind of stuff for the entire life mm -hmm. and they've been able to achieve things despite all of that. Yeah. Then it, it again becomes it's like mud on your shoes. Right. You know, it's an annoyance. It's an inconvenience. You're going to have to deal with it. And it doesn't mean that you can't get to where you want to go. Except for when you have muddy shoes and it dries and then you get more mud and then you get more mud and then you get more mud and then you get more mud. Suddenly there's a heaviness to that shoe that keeps you from taking a proper step. And I'm letting that sit for a moment. Yeah. Because that is important too, yeah. to recognize. Right. Right. That is important too. Uh, I think I've been fortunate that that hasn't, well, let's put it this way. What my parents have taught me, what my community has taught me about navigating that mm -hmm. is to know that there will always be more mud and there's always another path. Right. So if there's mud on this path, take a different path. Right. Find the other path. Mm -hmm. When it comes to the real ID, my path is I get a passport card. Right. And so I'm going to be using a passport card. Mm -hmm. It for the for people who are listening who are members of communities that experience this, I would encourage perhaps two ways of thinking about this. Um, they're not contradictory. They're just additional, right? Right. Mm -hmm. One is in that instance, when you came to the school, it was your first choice school. Mm -hmm. You had a dream of going there mm -hmm. and you found yourself disappointed. Mm -hmm. There's another way of looking at it, an additional, mm -hmm. you know, aspect to it. Not to say we um, 
you know, deny, deny the way that you're feeling about it. Mm -hmm. But in addition to the way you're feeling about it is also the truth that you probably would have been very unhappy there. Exactly. exactly. Had they pretended that they were okay with your art and, and, and exactly. so forth, that they admitted you, you probably would have been very unhappy there. Exactly. Right. And so you found a place where you were appreciated. They adored you. They gave you space and permission to do what you really wanted to do. Uh, you know, they gave you the opportunity to really grow and thrive as an artist. Right. So, you know, that's that's the other side of, of this. I find myself having appreciation well, I'm not saying that this is the best way for things to be. I'm not <laughs> trying to say that that I wouldn't want things to change either. Right. But I find that I have a gift in the sense of always knowing where I stand. Mm, I and that. being able to have clear direction yes. about what's the better path for me. Mm. Because doors are so often shut Yes. in my face mm -hmm. it's so much easier for me to see the open door i'm so glad you're saying this yes yes this right. is yeah this is really kind of winding to a close soon here i this is exactly what I, how i also came to process this whole episode um that ultimately hatred is a teacher and that does also go back to what we first you know this again uh leading in about just learning and keeping in that learning mode it's you're not relying on old past knowledge um that's just confirming for you you know you are actually in the now of learning and figuring out like that became a teacher for you. And same for me, like, like, yeah, go where you're wanted. Like, you're right. Like I wouldn't have been happy. That's a teacher for me to remember that. Like I know not to, again, to bring those things up is important to bring all everything up from the past that if you still have it in you and you haven't let it go, like bring it up and ask how has this become a teacher? And that's what you just said. I mean, I, that's exactly, exactly um, how I was feeling like this would close. And, um, and I did, I found this other quote. I don't know if this is, um, I don't know if you, have you ever heard of the book, um, Personality Isn't Permanent? It's no. Break Free from Self-Limiting Beliefs and Rewrite Your Story. It's by Dr. Benjamin Hardy. And um, this was kind of what I felt like would be closing words on my behalf and then <laughs> I'll, I'll hand it over to you. But just one quick sentence, which I thought was so great. It just is, um, and just I just wanted to leave people with this, whoever um, is watching or listening today and, you know, to ask yourself like, you know, what person, what story, what idea has has made you feel away and that has taken your power or you've given your power up to? Um, 
how can you learn from it, obviously, um, but also to remember, and this is the quote, that your past does not need to be the ultimate predictor of who you are. Your behavior doesn't need to be consistent with who you've been. You can change and radically so. And I just think that bringing it up isn't us wallowing in it. It's not us sitting in it. It's us learning from it. And um, to me, that's that's the beauty. That's your that's like you're saying. That's the new path. That's the new door. Uh, if you're willing to look at it and learn from it, and choose a new door, you always can. Yes. And I love that. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yes, precisely. Yeah. Uh, finding a way to make that thing that would crush you that would uh, diminish you that would deny you your personhood your dreams you're finding a way to make that a strength right and that is you know absolutely available um, the the way I see it is that uh, and different people describe this differently mm -hmm. but the way that I would describe it is that the universe is a paradox right and the paradox is always available that every experience has aspects and we can choose which aspect we focus on. Exactly. Right? Mm -hmm. So my family struggled coming out of South Africa mm -hmm. and that struggle has become um, a, a, a powerful reminder to us of the possibility of, of doing really well and thriving that we can look and see where we have come from, understood that the things that were intended to, to stop us, to knock us down, were the things that we actually stood on to yes. get to where uh, we so, want to go. Yes. Right? Yeah. So yes, exactly, Shannon. That's so wonderful. Mm -hmm. uh, and I want to close by saying thank you to whoever is still here. I know <laughs> that you are very special to us. We really appreciate that you are here and that we are you are listening. We want your comments. We want to hear from you what you want to hear, mm -hmm. what kind of format works for you. Uh, where we might be able to contribute more substance and um, more value for you with this show. So uh, thanks again for still being here and for listening. And we look forward to seeing you in the next episode. Absolutely. Yes. yes. Thank you. Yeah. All right. and Shannon, thank you for joining me. Appreciate that. Yeah. 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 Awesome. So good. All right. Okay. Well, take care, everybody. And we will see you in the next show. Yeah. Bye-bye.